Welcome to this gift podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. Last year, 75 million international tourists visited the U.S., and spending by domestic and inbound visitors amounted to nearly $950 billion. But the travel and tourism industry still has challenges, including increasingly long security lines at airports, fears about terrorism, resistance to the visa waiver program, and the uncertainty of a looming and sometimes nasty presidential election. On today's episode of the Skift Podcast, we're talking politics. What's the legacy of the Obama administration when it comes to travel? What hasn't yet been accomplished? And what's at stake for the industry as the country prepares to elect a new president? I'm Hannah Sampson, an editor and podcast host at Skift, and our guest today is Roger Dow, president and CEO of the U.S. Travel Association. Roger's based in D.C., but Skift spoke to him in New York City, where he was talking about some of these topics at the NYU International Hospitality Industry Investment Conference. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Hannah, it's good to be here. So you have described the time between 2000 and 2010 as America's lost decade of tourism, as the country's share of global long-haul tourists slumped. How would you characterize the five years that followed? Um, any, any more optimistic than that? I think uh, the five years followed were the beginning of a resurgence of the U.S. claiming back that lost market share, that uh, lost decade that we referred to, the U.S., why we were sleeping, and we were sleeping, we lost 37% of our market share. The rest of the world discovered this darling we call travel and tourism, and everybody was saying, come to China, come to Thailand, come to the Caribbean, come to Mexico, and the U.S. was silent. Not only were we silent, but we're putting up all sorts of barriers to keep people away. After September 11th, we did all the things that made sense but hurt, uh, making it hard to get a visa if you're from China or India or Brazil, make it no new visa waiver countries, make it harder to get through customs. All those things caused us to have the lost decade where the rest of the world exploded and we just limped along. Yeah. So what over the past five years, which um, were under the Obama administration, what, what would you say are the biggest gains that travel and tourism made to kind of reverse that lost decade? Well, I think the first thing, and you mentioned the Obama administration, is President Obama came into office and uh, one month into office made a statement that was really harmful. And he said, you can't go to the Super Bowl or Las Vegas on the taxpayer's dime. And that was right after TARP, and all the media, all Congress people jumped in and vilified anyone that had a meeting or staying in a resort. And literally, that one statement coupled by what followed caused the whole industry to decline. So we ended up, several of myself and several industry CEOs, meeting with this new president in March. And, uh, and this would have been March of 2009, March, right? Yeah, just yeah. after his, his election. And... Uh, he, he came in, he basically said to us, he said, look, that statement was not about the lodging business. He said it was referring to bankers and people like that. And Bill Marriott was sitting right next to the new president. And he said, but do you understand, as president, when you say something, the harm that it can do? And I, and I watched at that moment uh, our new president, President Obama, begin to truly understand or and want to know more about our industry. And from that moment on, this administration, you can say whatever you want about the administration, but has done phenomenal things when it comes to travel and tourism. In fact, I don't think they take enough credit for the things that they've done. Mm. I recall the president going to Disney World in, I think Mm -hmm. it was 2012, 
and announcing um, a slew of initiatives, including expanding global entry and the visa waiver program. Um, and I think I think there was some drilling down on promoting the country to international tourists. Um, so those are just three things. But are there were there what were some of the specific steps that that he or that the country took um, since that conversation right. in 2009? Well, before that, that meeting took place at, at Disney World, uh, several things happened. One, the U.S. had no promotional arm whatsoever to say, come to America. And all of our competitors were, as I say, come to those other countries. And uh, I talked to politicians, and they say to me, we don't need a promotional program. Everybody knows the U.S. And I'd say to congressmen, I'd say, how long have you been a congressman? They say, 30 years. Darn proud of it. And I said, well, gee, you don't have to campaign anymore, do you? And they go, you've got to be kidding me. My last election was the closest one ever. They bring money in from outside the state to unseat me. It was the toughest one ever. And I said, well, I thought everyone knew you. And uh, they said, well, that's different. So one of the first things that happened is we got past something called the Travel Promotion Act. And what that did is it created a $200 million promotional campaign for the U.S. And it's paid for by visitors. So it's a very nice thing in that visitors who come here Every two years, so it lasts for two years, pay $14 when they go online and tell Homeland Security they're coming. Mm -hmm. Four goes to Homeland Security, 10 goes into a, a pot, and that pot can add up to over $100 million. Anything over 100 goes to bus, uh, deficit reduction, mm -hmm. and the only way the industry gets one penny to uh, promotion out of it is match it dollar for dollar. So the industry has had to put $100 million. So that was one of the first things this president signed into the Travel Promotion Act, which created a group called Brand USA to promote America. Now we're on the same level playing field and above what other countries have. We're now in the game. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happened is if you're in China, India, or Brazil, it was very hard to get a visa. Uh, you were waiting 120 to 130 days to get your interview, your three-minute interview to say, can I come to America? And, you know, Hana, you wouldn't go somewhere if you had to wait five months for them to say, yes, you can go. Then you have to buy your airline tickets and all that. So that hurt us tremendously. So working with the State Department and with a fellow named Tom Nides, who was number two to Hillary Clinton at the time, he really got it. And Tom Nides is now with Morgan Stanley. But uh, Tom said, hey, there's real money here. And he began making it a priority with the folks in the State Department. And we've now brought those wait times down from 130 days in those countries down to one or two days. Hmm. The next thing that happened is we're able to uh, get more visa waiver countries. There's now, there were 27 visa waiver countries, and these are countries where you do not have to apply for visa. Your, your passport will allow you, and we'll talk about that in a minute, about visa waiver, get you in the country. Well, we now have 38 visa waiver countries. Mm -hmm. uh, the largest of those that came in with President Obama and, and with President Bush uh, was South Korea. When South Korea came to the visa waiver program, travel from South Korea went up 46% in one year. It's like turning on a faucet. People want so badly to come here. So when we remove hurdles for them to come to the United States, when we promote the United States, big things happen. Yeah. What are some of the biggest um, priorities that haven't yet been accomplished? Well, the, uh, the biggest thing that I, I think there's two or three things. One is I'm very concerned about the visa waiver program. When Brussels happened in Paris and, uh, you know, San Bernardino, California, what ended up happening is people who didn't understand the visa waiver program started saying, I'm talking about members of Congress and Senate's senators, saying we've got to shut down or curtail that problem because it's an easy way for bad people to come to the U.S. In reality, 
The problem with the visa waiver program, it's got a lousy name. It's a great program with a lousy name. Visa waiver sounds like we're looking the other way. In fact, it's a heavily layered program. To be in the visa waiver program, a country has to agree with the United States to let us examine and they examine our security system, how they vet people at any time, take a look at what the processes they have. A lost or stolen passport has to be reported within 24 hours. Uh, Interpol, uh, criminals have to be reported, no fly lists and all that. So it's a layered program. And the nice thing about it is the person has to say they're coming to the U.S. when 72 hours out. So now Homeland Security has 72 hours or more to look at somebody and be sure they're not a bad guy. Where if someone has a just has a visa, it might be good for a year. Well, they could turn to a bad guy six months later and just with their visa hop on a plane. So the problem that name waiver. It's a bad name. We should. If I could name it, I'd name it the really, 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 really secure system for legitimate travelers to come to the U.S. But we're, we're talking about making it the Secure Travel Partnership, but changing the name. But my fear is that another incident around the world will cause more people in Congress to say we ought to shut it down, where in fact, it's one of the best security programs we have, and we should get more countries into it uh, because they have to do so many security things with the U.S. to be in the program. Mm -hmm. what, what are your biggest priorities when it comes to travel for the next presidential administration what's do you have a dream scenario and okay. on the flip side do you have a nightmare scenario yes uh I've, the, the, the biggest priorities we have is number one to address our infrastructure right now if you look how fast the travel industry is growing uh in 2009 we had 50 million travelers when you started this program you said there's 75 uh last year president obama through the things he's worked on has basically set a goal by 2021 to have 100 million travelers. Just think of it, Kennedy Airport, Miami, Chicago, here, LA, San Francisco. Think of trying to put another 20, increasing number of visitors by 50% going through those airports. So one of the big problems we have is our infrastructure mm -hmm. of having the facilities where these planes can land, having more foreign competition, which is a problem because our U.S. carriers would like to keep out foreign competition and having enough customs and and technology of people that can get through the system. You don't want to get off a plane after 21 hours on the plane and then stand in line at the airport for three hours. So infrastructure and the whole system and process is extremely important to me. Uh, and also having enough air capacity to uh, fly all these people that want to come here uh, the next five years. And you, and you can't improve infrastructure overnight. They're long-term projects. Mm -hmm. So an administration that was dedicated to putting money toward improving that infrastructure. Right. What happens is we've watched Congress for 20, 25 years keep kicking the can down the road. Everyone knows that our roads and our bridges need improvement. Everyone knows that our airports could be a lot better. The last new airport we've had in America is 1996 when Denver Airport was built. We haven't had one new airport uh, in the past uh, almost 20 years. Where you go travel around the world, if you go to China, you go to the Middle East, you go to Turkey, and you're seeing these spectacular world-class airports. We don't have one airport that's in the top 25 in the world, and yet our whole travel system is what built our economy. The road system back after World War II, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, all the airports and all that, that's what built this economy, and we're risking losing it. So my dream scenario will be a candidate that really cares and, and a Congress that really will push and get serious about it, because every day we delay, it gets more expensive. It's not cheaper. And, but we, 
a decaying infrastructure, we just won't be able to handle the load anymore. My nightmare would be uh, us uh, being too protectionist and be, and looking in on ourselves and and basically saying we'll we'll you know try and keep people out of this country. What's made you know our, our society and our country grown is immigrants who've come in and people have come in and, 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 and melded into our society, which is important. I mean, it's very important. People come in and become functional people in our society and contributors to our society, and that's very important. If you, and if you shut this off, uh, that's a problem. I've said to Condoleezza Rice when she was uh, Secretary of State, I said to Hillary Clinton, I said, improving and getting more travelers to the United States is your stealth public diplomacy. What's it worth to the United States, the fact that we've got 25 million more people a year coming to America than we did five years ago and going home and saying they're nice people? We like them. It's not like we read in the past. What would it be worth to have another 10 or 20 million? So it's so important for public diplomacy to have people come here, visit, leave their money, and go home. Mm-hmm. Well, when you think about people... Um, considering America a nice place. I think we have to consider some of the rhetoric that we've been hearing in the political sphere over the last several months. Um, you know, build a wall, don't let people from a certain religion come into the country. Do you have a sense of whether the tenor of the current election is echoing around the rest of the world or what those conversations are doing to potential international visitors? Okay. We live in a world right now of 24-7 media. So whatever happens uh, 20 years ago, something happened in the U.S. or something happened in the U.K., we wouldn't even know about it. Uh, now something happens within four seconds, people know about it. So I do think uh, some of the inflammatory rhetoric has got people really looking. My, uh, the biggest travel show in the world, uh, next to our IPW show, which is in America, uh, is called ITB, and it's in Berlin, Germany. Mm-hmm. And countries from all over the world come, and it was just held uh, a couple months ago. And people that went there told me, these are people in the travel industry, everyone they sat down with for appointments of international travel buyers, the first five minutes was, what about your election? What's going on? Tell me more about this person. Tell me more about that person. And then they got down to business. So it is the rhetoric. I, uh, I'm i an optimist. I hope to believe that rhetoric is you know, what happens during elections and common sense follows after elections. So let's hope, whatever the case, whoever wins, that that is, you know, that is the case because it's so important. And one of the things that's going to be most important, Hannah, is for us, just like we did with President Obama, is to get in with the new president, whether it's Hillary Clinton or whether it's Donald Trump, and really get them, their, their folks grounded on the importance of travel and tourism and what it does to the economy, what it does to world commerce, what it does to understanding, and really understand that they're grounded. Because President Obama got it. He figured it out, and he said, we're going to grow travel and tourism. And and he pushed many things. Uh, Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker has done a phenomenal job. She got a, passed a 10-year visa. It used to be you only had a one-year visa from China. So you have Chinese business people who come here every year, two and three times a year. Every year they got to stand in line to get their visa. Now they can get a 10-year visa. Well, the Chinese numbers... To put it in perspective, five years ago we had 500,000 Chinese visitors. Last year, 2.2 million. Mm. Two or three years now, 4 million. Five, six years now, 6 million. China will be bigger than the UK and Japan combined. And But it's moves like this that really build understanding and build our economy. And when you look at the two um, nominees, I, you know, I don't think they're even presumptive nominees, 
quite anymore at this point, but they both have relevance to travel. Mm -hmm. Secretary of State Clinton, you know, obviously traveled around the world, went to a lot of countries <laughs> in that role and as a first lady. Donald Trump uh, has a whole hotel empire. So right. they both have this background and, and you would think understanding of, um, of the importance of travel and tourism. Have you had a chance to have conversations with them yet? Um, and if you have, what did you say? If no. you haven't, um, what, what do you think the conversation will okay. be? We're, we're working towards uh, getting meetings post-convention with both Hillary Clinton's people and Donald Trump's people to mm -hmm. talk about travel and tourism. The, as you mentioned, we, we have a head start in that they both have an understanding of the importance of travel. I was at a State Department uh, meeting that Hillary Clinton convened with Tom Nides, bring the travel industry together with people uh, from the State Department from Mexico, from Germany that issued visas and all that. And so I know she has a, a keen understanding of how important travel is from all her travels. Donald Trump from owning his hotels certainly understands the impact of travel and meetings and conventions, so he understands that. So. But we need to get with them and really make sure that they don't make a misstep uh, and as the new President Obama did of saying you can't go to the Las Vegas of the Super Bowl and taxpayers dime that really inadvertently without meaning to kick the industry in the knees and took a long time to recover. So we have to make sure that they understand. And the one thing I'm happy that they both said, our infrastructure needs addressing. I hope they both stick to whoever is elected and really make that a top priority because we're, we're dealing in an infrastructure. I mean, looking at LaGuardia, looking at Kennedy, looking at our road system, it's really, you know, backwards compared to what it could be. High-speed rail doesn't exist in the U.S. And I think once if we get a small little bit of high-speed rail somewhere and Americans could see it, then they'd want it. Right now, they just think it's a Acela going a little faster versus a maglev train that goes 300 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. If they had, if we had maglev technology in the U.S., you could get from Washington to New York City in about an hour and 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. You get from New York City to Philadelphia in 24 minutes. Think of what that would do to the housing market. Forget travel in Philadelphia. All of a sudden, young people uh, like you and your husband would say, I'm going to live in Philadelphia. I'm going to take money that I could spend here in Manhattan and in 24 minutes, which is less than my commute today from downtown, be in my office. It'll totally change. But people aren't thinking that broadly. But uh, we have a way, if we don't address our infrastructure of failing, if we do address of regaining our stature as the best you know, travel and access country in the world. Does um, does U.S. travel endorse a candidate? No, we never do uh, because you know we, we we endorse Senate and congressional candidates who are from areas that really push and believe in travel, and we, and we we're about. 50-50. We, we, we we have a white hat industry, we, we, so we're not, we're not pushing for something that people don't like. Everyone likes travel. But we, we go right down the line, 50-50, uh, and our PAC contribution and all that. Uh, presidential politics is a dangerous game because you either win or you lose. <laughs> and if you lose, that's not good because it's hard to get back at the table. So uh, most associations uh, such as ours do not get involved in endorsing a, or getting behind one candidate or the other. What we do is we quickly scramble to get them to understand the issues and to be close to them. Like we've met with President Obama in the White House, CEOs of our industry, myself, three times. 
Uh, we, when he was in Florida, I was with him down there, and then up at Cooperstown, where he announced that he wanted to improve the, the ability to get through customs and border protection much better than it is today. Before that, the travel industry had never met with a sitting president. The closest we came was Bill Clinton during the, there was a White House conference on travel and tourism, and Bill Clinton came and spoke at the luncheon. But beyond that, and I've been in this business over 40 years, this industry has never sat with a sitting president. And this past, this present president, President Obama, we've been with three times, one-on-one within a, around a conference table in the Roosevelt Room of 15 people talking about our industry. So it sounds like his attention to the industry has really mattered. Um, but when it comes to those overarching issues and needs, how much does the president, him or herself, really matter um, and how much of it is, you know, from from a state level, you know, governors and state representatives and senators, and then U.S. senators and U.S. representatives. Well, it's very important to get the uh, the local uh, members of uh, the House and the Senate to really understand the issues and to have our people in the travel industry speak with them in their neighborhood. I mean, I live in Washington D.C. and I run an association, and they like to meet with me, but they really don't care about me. When one of their constituents comes in from Fargo and sits with them, they care about them. So it's important that our constituents in the travel industry meet with these people. And the president can only do so much. Uh, at least this president pushed hard to saying travel was important. But we're simultaneously working with members of Congress and members of Senate. Uh, if we don't get Congress, we're, you know, the president would like to improve the infrastructure, but it's, it's stuck in spending in Congress and uh, stuck in the Senate. I'll give you an idea uh, how tough the situation is. When the Travel Promotion Act, I mentioned, passed in 2010, actually when George Bush was president, it passed through the House of Representatives, the vote was 300 and something for to 90 something against, which is in today's politics is unbelievable. Well, we didn't get a chance to get it through the Senate because the financial crisis hit like a week later. So President Obama becomes elected and we had a get the same bill reintroduced, which we did in March, uh, in the House and voted on, and it passed almost identical, 300 and some for, 90 against. Now, we didn't change one I or uncross one T, word for word, the exact same bill. When President Bush was president, the 92 people against it were all Democrats. When President Obama was elected, the exact same bill, the 92 people against it were all Republicans. That's the problem we have. 92 people who loved it, hated it. 92 people who hated it, loved it. And you can't get things done when you've got that situation. So we need Congress and the president all together to say these are priorities and they're national priorities beyond travel and tourism. Yeah. I don't know what we can blame this next issue on, um, but anybody who's been traveling over the last few weeks or paying attention to the news knows that there is an issue with long lines. Mm -hmm. The TSA is blaming Congress. Congress is blaming the TSA. Maybe there's a little bit of blame to go around. Um, there's there's pre-check that um, not enough people are signing up for, according to the TSA. Um, what do you think it's going to take to solve this problem, especially in the near term as we're entering the busy summer travel season? Um, and and if it's not resolved quickly, what do you think the impact could be in the long term? Okay. Uh, number one, you mentioned people are pointing at each other. It goes even further than that. People are blaming the airlines because they charge for check bags, and so it makes people carry more bags. People are blaming the travelers because they haven't signed up. 
people are blaming Congress because they haven't allocated enough money for TSA. So everyone's pointing fingers at everyone else. Uh, three th a couple things have to happen. One, we've got to hire up to the levels that have been approved by Congress. TSA is 7,000 people short from what they're approved to hire. So they're, they're pushing very hard. They've just got money to get another 700 people. But to get the people hired, it's, it's sort of like a funnel. As you fill it in the top, it's leaking from the bottom because they have turnover. They've, a lot of these people are part-time. They need to give them full-time jobs or they end up going elsewhere. So it's hiring practices have to happen. Second thing, uh, what we've got to do is we've got to get more people, as you said, in TSA pre-check. You and I are not going to blow up a plane. There is no reason why you and I should be treated like the next terrorist. Uh, but the fact is, someone should look in our background and know who we are. But we should be able to go through an airport much more efficiently. So TSA pre-check, uh, the goal of TSA was to get 25 million people in that program. Unfortunately, they're closer to 10. Uh, so they had actually reduced staffing levels, thinking all these people would sign up. Well, there's three problems that I've testified for Congress and to, to TSA. Uh, three problems, I call them the three Ps. The first is price. It's $85 per person to sign up with PreCheck, which actually, is, and lasts, that's for five years. So if you signed up for PreCheck for five years for $85, if you were stuck in a big line at LaGuardia, you'd pay $85 that day. Just to go through. So, so it's a bargain. But the bottom line, if you're a family of four, that's $340. If you're a company that's going to sign a thousand of their people, it shouldn't be $85. They've got to get the price where you can do volume discounts, you do family discounts, things like that to encourage people, just like the rest of the world works. Mm -hmm. The second thing is process. Uh, I was with Admiral Neffinger, who uh, is the administrator for TSA, and a great fellow, and uh, doing the best he can in the circumstances, and he's, he's the right guy for the job. But I I'd said to him, I said, you know, when you apply for TSA pre-check, it can take four, or five, four to five weeks to get your answer that you're approved. Uh, I said, if I was to buy uh, your home from you, I could call up Quicken Mortgage and get my mortgage in one minute. I said, you've got to get the process down where people, the systems can talk to each other. And then you've got to make sure you have to move enough people to the pre-check lines because if a lot of people get in pre-check and they can't get through, you know, they're going to they're get mad. So you've got, so it's a process. That's the second P. And the third P is promotion. You know it, I know it, but most of America has no idea what the heck pre-check is. They see a sign for pre-check in the airport, they think it must be an employee line or something. They or they get it, it accidentally, and they just think they'll get it what from now on. What happened this time? And then yeah. they find out next time they didn't get it. What's wrong with me? Uh, so we, we need to get the pricing right, we need to get the processes right, and we've got to get the promotion right. And I guess if I was going to put a fourth P and make it a priority, I'd said to someone at the White House, I said, if this was Ebola or if this was Zika, we'd be putting a lot of effort and money behind us. If I ruled the world, I said I would open enrollment for six months and give everybody who could qualify and get vetted free pre-check. Mm -hmm. And then they start paying you know, a year from now. But get the people in the program because then, if you want to find a needle in the haystack, you shrink the size of the haystack. So for, us, for you and I and everyone else to be treated all the same going through the line when we're not all the same is a, is a problem. Frequent travelers who have given us all their, you know, I told them I'd give them my high school grades to get through, you know, fast, faster through the airport. But people who allow you know, us to look at their backgrounds and know that they're a safe, trusted traveler should be able to whiz through. It should get down to facial recognition. Five years from now, this should look, and they know that's Hannah, and they know this is Roger, and we should just walk right down a hallway and never get stopped unless we don't look like the facial recognition. That's where we can get to, but it's going to take a commitment, technology. Short term, you asked, there's several things I've done. 
One, we've got to get the people uh, some deployed to the busiest airports. So they're pulling some people from airports that are not as busy. Mm -hmm. the, the, one of the, the best for pre-check uh, or, or for TSA are dogs. Trained dogs are phenomenal. They have a shortage of dogs. We've got to train more dogs and get dogs to the bigger airports. Uh, they do a phenomenal job. And we've got to do simple things like someone who's a TSA, uh, has been all through all the training, who's an inspector, is sitting at the exit line when you're going out the airport to make sure someone doesn't come in the wrong way. We could hire someone, you know, trained, but they don't have to be fully trained on vetting people going through security to sit and say, you can't go that way. Or carrying the bins. You've been in an airport and you watch the person, excuse me, with a big, you know, push cart when they've run out of bins. Right. If you travel internationally, they've got machines that the bin comes right back to you and no person touches it. Why do we have people carrying bins and <laughs> keeping people from coming in the wrong exit door that we could do, you know, with less, you know, sophisticately trained people. Mm -hmm. um, the underlying concern behind behind all of this is really um, what happened on 9-11, what happened in Brussels and, and Paris. Um, terror, of course, is in the conversation now because it has been hitting these places that are not, um, you just don't expect to see such violence in Brussels and Paris. What? How much of a chilling effect do you think that has had on travel around the world, and does that trickle down or impact the U.S.? It has had a, uh, a, a chilling effect, uh, especially close to where it's happened. If you look at uh, Paris and French, the tourism is way down, and they took a couple of billion dollars worth of cancellations right after Paris. Brussels, the same thing, people skipping Brussels. So it has an immediate effect where terrorism happens, but there's also a fairly rapid recovery of people's minds and it's on to the next challenge of the world. Uh, I don't mean to be Pollyanna about it. I mean, the travel industry, when September 11th happened, the travel industry was on its knees in 45 minutes. In 45 minutes, every plane was on the ground and the travel industry took years to recover. So without security, there is no travel. So we want great security. But you have to understand that the chances of something happening are tragic as they are, if something does, you sure don't want to be there and I don't want to be there, but are so extraordinarily remote. But fear is something that can that gets fanned and people will change their habits. If you know, if we have some terrorism here at all in the US it would be an awful thing. People will stop travel. We find when you asked about TSA, uh, we find that lines, if it's it's gets to be too big a hassle, people say, I'm not taking the trip. I'll stay home. I'll do it by phone. Mm -hmm. So we've identified $37 billion worth of loss to the economy if they can't improve these lines of just the people who say, I'm going to skip that trip. Yeah. Um, last question. Given the place where we are right now in the political cycle, in just the, the global security situation, what is your message to especially international um, potential visitors about coming to the U.S.? Uh, my message to potential visitors to U.S. is, number one, we want you to come here. We welcome you. We've got one of the most secure uh, countries in the world, and we have everything in the world you want to see. Where many countries have great architecture or great restaurants or great uh, beaches, we have them all and then some. So come to America, and America is not just New York City, Las Vegas, California, Florida. 
America's Wyoming, America's Oklahoma, America's Texas, and there's so many things to see and do in America that you could never run out of. Every time you come to America, there's a different thing to see in a different place. So we want you to come here, we welcome you, and we look forward to your visiting. All right, very good. Roger, thank you so much. Really appreciate Pleasure. it.